We are in Genesis 32, and my first question to you might fall off your shoulders pretty easily until you really think about it. And here's my first question Have you ever wrestled with God? So now God doesn't show up in your backyard and you don't wrestle with him in your backyard. I get that. But when I say to you, have you ever wrestled with God? Pictures will come into my mind like God is calling you to do something. You don't really want to do it. And so you wrestle with him a little bit. God tells you to bite your tongue. Eh, it's so much easier not to. And so you wrestle with God a little bit. God tells you to give a little more in this certain situation, but your bank account won't quite allow for it, so you wrestle with God a little bit. Somebody needs something, and you know you should pitch in and do something, sacrifice your time, but you got a lot to do, so you wrestle with God a little bit. When you put it into terms like that, it's very interesting how much we actually do wrestle with God almost on a regular basis. In fact, we probably do it far more often than we think. We grapple for our plan, our vision, our future, when the whole time God might have something completely different. It's almost like people say, God is my co-pilot. Yeah, that's kind of an easy way out, right? God is my co I'll drive the car, and God can give me directions. When in actuality, God is the driver. He's the one who both gives the directions and drives the vehicle. For us, we have a tendency not to like the direction we're going, so we try and yank the wheel away. Or we don't like the direction that God's taking us in, or the speed that he's going, or his timing. And so we try and pull the wheel away. We don't quite trust the driver. Ironically, this is how our church started. (laughs) So now is confession time. If you've never heard the story then you're about to hear the story of the birth of this church. If you have heard this story, forgive me for being redundant. It's just more fodder that you have to remember your pastor is flawed. Three years ago, the Lord was directing the Jarvises to figure out what we should do next in our lives. We had uh, really been in a, in a situation where we had to reassess everything, and we were trying to decide what direction we were going to go in. At the bottom, at the core... We wanted to do what God wanted us to do. But it's so much easier if he'd write it in the sky. And so there's no writing in the sky. So you've just got to keep moving forward. We started going to Village Church of Bartlett. I met up with Michael. And uh, Michael, you know, is an interesting character. He's going to listen to this message. So Michael's an interesting character. Say amen. Amen. Say there you go. (laughs) There's big amens there, Michael. And... um, so when I met up with him, he, uh, he, we began to get to know each other. He invited him along on, himself along on my fishing trip. By the way, I like to fish alone. Michael invited himself along on my fishing trip. So we fished. And the longer we spent with one another, the more we real, realized how much we actually had in common. He began to, to see that we were having a Bible study on, in, our church, in, our, in our home on Wednesday nights. And uh, we had a lot of people that would show up, and some would stay, and some would, some would uh, go and over time, uh, Michael just said, listen, Greg, why, why don't you start a church? And I said, Michael, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to start a church. That's for a younger person. I'm kind of older, and I don't want to deal with, you know, making constitutions and starting from scratch and setting up chairs, and that just sounds like a whole lot of, you know, I'd rather do pastoral stuff. I want to sit down with people and get into their lives and kind of share life with them. 
So I said, no, nah, I don't think that's for me. So he said in uh, January, uh, so that was December, January said, hey, Craig, why don't you start a church? I said, no, you probably didn't hear me when I said it back in December, but that's not going to happen. February comes up and he says, hey, Craig, why don't you start a church? I said, dude, you you are definitely not hearing me. We're not going to do that. Then he goes on a sabbatical, which he does every once in a while, heads out to California, and he calls me on the phone. He says, pull a car. I said, I'm in the car. He said, pull it over. So I pulled the car over. He said, I got to talk to you. So I talked to him. And he said, I just had an epiphany. What if we started a church together? And I said, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? And he said, well, I'm not one for piping uh, people up on the screen and stuff like that. We want to have an independent kind of a church that kind of originates from the bottom and grows up. And we talked about it. We talked about what that would look like. And, and I said, okay, I'll talk to Beth about it. And Beth and I began to pray about it. And we were open to whatever God would have us to do. And it just seemed like this was a door. While other doors were shutting, this was one that kept opening. And it occurred to me that maybe this is what God wants me to do, and I'm kind of fighting it a little bit too much. So we talked, we prayed, met with the elders. Long story short, uh, we did some research, and we came up with the idea of Village Church East. And we launched two years ago and three months. So we're two years and three months old since we started this church. And, uh, and you are a part of the ground floor of making this church happen. What I love about this church is what I kind of feared about it at the beginning, and that is it would be a lot, of, of, um, a lot of menial work. But what I find is when we do this task together, when we walk into an empty room and start putting chairs up together, when we start plugging things in together and putting the lights up together, when we put a children's area together and a nursery together, we end up actually doing life together. We end up getting into each other's lives. And we start talking about how are things with our kids and what's happening with school and how's the job going and how's marriage going. And we, we have a lot of amazing conversations. And out of that comes some really intimate relationships. And so what I feared, well, I didn't fear it, but what I was intimidated by at the beginning ended up actually being a blessing. It's one of the greatest things that I enjoy about doing church with you is that we get to not only put up chairs together, but we get to do a lot of life together. It's turned out to be a really big blessing in my life. What I wrestled God over at first has actually turned out to be one of the biggest blessings of my life and my family's life. And we love our church. And so we're anxious to see where the Lord has for us. I mean, think of the lives that have been impacted. We have two people even uh, this morning who just got baptized last Sunday, you know? Uh, Two people that gave their lives to Jesus Christ last week. Um, And so we're seeing the Lord use us, and we're anxious uh, for more of that. We got some things coming up this summer. We're going to get involved with the community. And, um, and you, can, you can find out more about that online. But Village Church East is on the grow. And I'm grateful that God still uses us. I wonder what would have happened if I kept saying no. I wonder what would have happened to us if I kept saying no. Grappling with God doesn't have to be as harsh as starting a church. But it's interesting to me how much we actually fight with God when he just prompts us, Craig, just consider this. And we start praying about it. We start pushing doors. And God opens those doors and begins to transform our lives into what we never thought he could do. Unfortunately, the longer we grapple with God, the more we realize how much at the end of our rope we are. Because if God wants us to do something and we fight him, fight him, fight him, eventually we get so stressed, we get to the end of our rope. This is where Jacob is this morning. Let me bring you up to speed. 
Jacob is running for his life again. He ran for his life with Esau, and he ran to Laban. Laban, his uncle, has had it with Jacob. And so he, they agree, Jacob runs away from Laban. Laban catches up to him. Laban builds a barrier. And he said, Jacob, if you cross this barrier, I'm going to kill you. And Jacob says, agreed, if I cross this barrier, we're going to kill each other. So they put up a barrier. Jacob has his two daughters and 11 sons, Laban's grandchildren. And Laban will never see those kids again because of Jacob burning bridges behind him. Laban's kids accused Jacob of theft and deceit. And so Laban, or Jacob runs again, not from Esau, this time from Laban. But in order to run from Laban, he has to run toward Esau. And so he begins to run in Esau's direction. Now, he thinks he has more of a chance with Esau than he does with Laban, probably because 20 years have passed. So he thinks to himself, maybe Esau will forgive me. Maybe it'll go easier because he just stole his birthright and his blessing. And the last thing that happened was his dad Isaac and his mother Rebecca said, Jacob, get out of town. Because if you don't get out of town, your brother's going to kill you. That's why Jacob ran to Laban. Now he's running from Laban back to Esau 20 years later. And he thinks to himself, brilliant idea. I will send messengers to tell Esau I'm coming home. Maybe Esau will be ready for me or forgiving enough, he won't kill me. So he sends his messengers to go tell Esau he's coming home. Here's what happened. The messengers come back to Jacob. And I can just imagine this meeting. He said, uh, so here's the thing, Jacob. We didn't make it all the way to Esau. Well, we, we, the message got to him that you're coming home. But as soon as he got that message, we saw him amass a 400-person army. And he is coming in our direction. So Jacob's thinking to himself, hmm, if Esau was ready to forgive me, why 400 men? Right? He probably thinks, what do you think he thinks? If Laban's chasing him from the back, builds a barrier, says don't cross it, Esau's coming after him with 400 armed men. What do you think Jacob is feeling right now? Trapped? Scared? All good words. I agree. I think he's petrified. Because he's thinking to himself, why would he be coming out with 400 soldiers? So Jacob does what any one of us would do. He strategizes. He can't go back. He can't move forward. Death lies behind him. Death lies in front of him. He's at his end of his rope, and he has nowhere to go. And why does he have nowhere to go? Because he has burned every bridge in his life for 90 years. Not one safe place. Now, how do you think that? How does that make you feel about Jacob? Are you, are you at all sorrowful for him at all yet? No. You still don't like Jacob? I'm trying to get you to like this guy. Come on. Still don't like him. Yeah, you feel for him. Okay, thank you, Brian. One, one in a mass. All right. Let's pick it up in verse 7, chapter 32, and verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. How does Jacob feel? Give me a couple of words. He is what? Afraid and distressed. 
So what does he do? He divides the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking to himself, here's the strategy. If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the camp that is left will escape. How far at the end of your rope do you have to think to divide everything you own into two camps, including your children? Because you think one camp is going to be wiped out, but at least we can salvage the other one. Esau can't attack both camps at the same time. He strategizes because he's afraid he's going to be wiped out. He goes into self-protection mode. And he divides these camps into two, into two groups. Esau can't take out both camps. By the way, which camp do you think Leah thought she was in? Camp A, the stronger one, or camp B, the lesser one? <laughs> yeah. Leah's probably thinking, I know what camp I'm in. I'm with all these weaklings over here. Rachel, his favorite, is in the better camp. This is what people do when they get to the end of their rope. Let me ask you one more question. What else do people do when they get to the end of their rope? Come on, you know this. Yeah, they cry out to God. So guess what else Jacob does? Verse 11. He begins to pray to God, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, God, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. Jacob has nothing but prayer left. Have you ever been that far at the end of your rope? Yeah. Nothing but prayer left. And notice the way that he prays. He has nothing but God's promise to hang on to. So you know what he talks to God about? The promise God made to him. You said I'd be okay. You said I'd have a, a people, uh, 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 offspring like the sands of the shore and the stars in the sky. You said I would get the Abrahamic blessing. That's what you said. And he holds God to his promise. That is very significant. He prays that God would hold true to his word. Verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, the two female servants and 11 children and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. And so he's reduced his his company down. He's just down to his own family. He's coming down. If you picture in your mind, he's coming down from Turkey. He crosses this river Jabbok. This is not an easy task. It would have been very difficult to get all his people across and his animals and everything that he has amassed over the last 20 years. And so he gets his family across, thinking to himself, this is the safest place, at least for them. Verse 23. And he took them and sent them across the stream. And how much stuff did he send with them? Everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now this is, this is the passage that rocks our world. Esau's in front of him. His family is in front of him also as a buffer for Esau. That's courage, right? That's the knight in shining armor. If I put my kids out front, Esau won't kill all my kids to get to me. Puts his family in front of him. He's so terrified, he thinks to himself, 400 men, Esau won't have them kill my family. So I stick them in front of me, and I'm left. I'm left with nothing but Laban behind me, the barrier I can't cross, this stream. I got my family on the other side of the stream. I'm left with literally this little strip of land where I can't be touched. This guy has been promised the promised land. And all he has is this little strip of safety left in his life. 
He's got nothing else. And he's so terrified that he can't sleep. This guy who once slept with a rock for his pillow, you remember that? Now lays in the wilderness so terrified he cannot sleep. And he's all alone. No family, no kids, no nothing. He's all alone, him and his staff, laying on the ground, praying to God he can survive until the morning. And guess what happens? Right when he thinks he's alone, a hand on his shoulder. And a guy, he doesn't know who it is. Could be a, could be a, a thief. Could be an assassin sent from Esau. But some guy shows up in his little strip of safety. Puts his hand on his shoulder. And so what does Jacob do? Jacob does what Jacob does. He fights him. He doesn't ask him who he is. He just takes it to him, begins to fight him. I can't imagine the frustration for Jacob because he's thinking to himself, are you kidding me? All I need is this little strip of land. I just want a little sleep. My family will protect me from Esau in the front. The river and the barrier will protect me from Laban in the back. I just, just a little sleep. Have you ever been to the place where you just say to God, just give me a day. Just give me a, a breath. Give me a strip of safety so that I can just rest for a minute. And it just keeps coming and coming and coming. You ever been there? I think that's exactly where Jacob is. But Jacob is afraid for his life. And it's interesting to me too. Even alone, Jacob can't fight, fly, flight, run from Jacob. When he sees a guy show up and begin picking a fight, or, or I'm guessing Jacob picked the fight, Jacob just does what Jacob does. He wrestles him and tries to get supremacy over him. That's why we called this grappling. All Jacob does is grapple for a place of power. It's all he knows. Regardless of the very possibility he's about to lose everything he's already grappled for, he's not ready to change. The loneliness doesn't accomplish repentance. Jacob does not change. He, he is afraid and fights this stranger in fear. Now, who is this stranger? The Bible doesn't tell us in Genesis 32 who he is, but if you look further in Hosea 12.4, the Bible calls us, looks back on this occasion, and calls us the angel of God. Typically, when you have that title, the angel of God, it is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. This probably is Jesus Christ in flesh. God cannot appear in flesh unless it's in the form of Jesus Christ. So this is probably, and when it refers to the angel of God, typically it refers to Jesus. So this is probably a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. And it's also apparent in the way that uh, Jacob fights with this guy, and then what happens afterwards. We'll get to that in a minute. But here's what I want you to know. Jacob has come face to face with God, so he can finally come face to face with himself. And ultimately, God is going to have to break him. So here's what happens. Verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was was pulled out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now I looked up the commentaries like, what does this mean for the hip to be pulled out of joint? Some people in our church uh, have had a hip pulled out of joint. Uh, uh, Brent just had a, uh, that happen recently, and he said it was one of the worst pains he's ever had. Hip pulled out of joint. And so in our day and age, we can put a new hip in there. So that might have been what happened. A lot of commentators think that this was a sciatic nerve. How many of you have had sciatic nerve issues? Yeah, me too. It is painful. 
right? And it comes up and acts up when you least expect it. Some people think this was a sciatic nerve issue. Whatever it was, it was a painful moment that Jacob had to fight through. Verse 26. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken, the stranger said. But Jacob said, Now get this, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Verse 27. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Here you have the reason for the battle. Jesus doesn't show up and wrestle anyone except here in Scripture, Jacob. And why in the world does he do it? And why does he prevail over Jacob so that he can get him to say his name? He fights Jacob and he says, here's what I want you. It's like, have you ever played uh, the game where you wrestle somebody to the ground, you know, and you say, say uncle, say uncle, you know, uncle, and they get up. This is kind of like that, but a little different. Because my question to you at this point is, what is Jacob's name attached to? Anything good? Is he the loving son? Is he the gracious father? Is he the adoring husband? Is there anything good that we can say about Jacob at all? I mean, half of you people don't even like him, and I'm trying to get you to like the guy. Jacob has ruined his name. So he fights with Jesus until this pre-incarnate Christ, this angel of God, fights with Jacob until he can reduce him to the point of breaking. And even after he breaks his hip, he continues to wrestle until the angel says, listen, this, we've had it. This is enough. What I want you to do, we're going to wrestle until eternity. I want you just to tell me one thing. What's your name? And I think somewhere in the middle of the night, during that fight, Jacob's hip gave way. And I think Jacob just kept on fighting. And sometime in the night, God opened his eyes and he realized he was fighting the angel of God. And I think that really came out here, where he's fighting and the angel says, Tell me who you are. And all he can say is, I'm Jacob. Now, typically, a wrestling match lasts six minutes. If you go to a wrestling match, it's about six minutes. These guys fought all night. Have you ever wrestled with somebody for hours? How about six hours? They have to be exhausted. Well, one of them has to be exhausted. (laughs) And the other thing about it is, God lets him. God could have done the whole kung fu, you know? He could, have, he could have ended it really fast, but he doesn't do it. He lets him fight all night. Even when the day broke and Jacob's hip had broken hours before, Jacob still fights. 90 years old, and he won't give up. Is anyone surprised? So this pre-incarnate Christ, this angel, needs Jacob to admit some things. He needs him to admit what he's done with his name. It's a name full of deceit, thievery, selfishness. It has nothing good attached to it. And so God wrestled with Jacob to show Jacob, Jacob. In the wrestling match, he cleans the mirror off. He sticks Jacob's face in the mirror and he says, what do you see? You tell me. And Jacob says, I'm Jacob. And now we understand what Esau meant when he said, Jacob has Jacobed me. His name meant nothing good. 
And Jacob did not like admitting who he had become. For the last 90 years, grappling to find a place of power, and what's he left with? A small strip of land, people who hate him behind him, people who hate him in front of him. He thinks he's going to die. He's going to lose everything that he has. He's strategizing to, to survive one more day in a strip of land where he still can't be alone. And God visits him and says, tell me what you've done with this name. Jacob burned every single bridge in his life for the last 90 years. And now he's left to wrestle alone and confess out loud his name in fear and despair. I think God opened Jacob's eyes to realize who he was really fighting. And he had grappled with everyone in his life. And now he could only grapple with the one person who he actually could not live without. Jacob is desperate beyond despair. And so he just wants this divine being to reiterate a blessing. Remember, he had heard this blessing in the same basic spot, Bethel. Remember? He had heard this blessing before when he saw the angels going up and down this ladder in heaven. And God reiterates to him, you're going to get the Abrahamic blessing. And he goes to find Laban and he finds Rachel. And that whole thing gets messed up. And he messes up that whole thing. And now on his way home, 20 years later, he just says, can you still use me? Am I still worthy of the Abrahamic blessing. He had deceived for the blessing, but now he's desperate for it. Is it possible for him to change? Have you ever asked yourself the same thing? (laughs) Can I still be the instrument of God's blessings after all I've done? Verse 28. And he said, this is the angel, He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now keep in mind, he did not win with the angel, right? He did not prevail with the angel. God is not congratulating Jacob on all the deceit he has pulled off over the years. He's not saying, congratulations, you fought with men. Congratulations, you fought with God and you've prevailed. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, no more than he prevailed at this fight, it's a draw. And it's only a draw because God let it be a draw. I think this simply means God finally broke through. Jacob was a changed man from this point forward. He had his last grapple, and he had to admit he couldn't do it anymore. So God made him say his name, and God changed his Life. So God gave him a new name. I love this. No longer is he going to be called Jacob or Jacob. He's going to be called Yisrael, which means, guess what that means? Grappled with God. For the rest of his life, people will call him Israel. And every time they do, he will remember this night and how his life changed. And by the way, he is one more reminder for the rest of his life. What's his ongoing reminder? Every step he takes, every time somebody calls his name, he remembers this night and how God changed him. It's the determination and strength of faith to hang helpless on Christ and know that he's able to support and comfort the one who clings to him. Now get this, God shows up and doesn't let Jacob burn this final bridge. Jacob, every relationship has burned bridges His life is a pile of burning ash of relationships from the past. 
but God fights with him and won't let him go. With every limp you take, you'll remember, Jacob, Israel now, I am faithful to you. And whenever you hear your name, you'll remember what it took to get your heart back to God. Verse 29. So Jacob returns the favor. Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. He doesn't tell him his name. It's aggravating, right? Just tell him your name. And I think that's the other reason this is probably the pre-incarnate Christ, because this angel never says his name. In other parts of Scripture, if it's an angel like Gabriel or Michael or something, we have the identity in the name. But this time, he does not tell Jacob his name. Jacob never learned the name of the one who changed him for good. So my question to you this morning is this, what's attached to your name? When I say Cain, you think Cain. You remember Cain? When I think Cain, you think Abel. And what did Cain do to Abel? He murdered him. So when I say Cain, you think murder. When I say Noah, you think drunk. When I say David, you think adulterer. When I say Peter, you think betrayer. When I say your name, you think... What have you done with your name? What have I done with my name? What do your friends think when they hear your name? There's a lot of attached to a name. You ever seen a, you ever seen a guy play golf? His name is Payne Stewart. He's not alive anymore. He actually died about 20 years ago. Payne Stewart was one of the most amazing golfers I've ever researched. If you knew Payne Stewart, you would think Payne Stewart was a pain. He was known as one of the least favorite people on the PGA. Nobody wanted to play golf with him. He was cynical, he was angry, and he blamed everybody else for his golf game going bad. He was a bad dude. Nobody wanted to be paired with Payne Stewart. One day his children started going to a church and attending a little group called Awana. They were influenced for Jesus Christ. They came home. They told their mom about Jesus. Their mom was intrigued, and both the children and mom accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And bada-bing, bada-boom, they start praying for pain because they didn't like hanging around with them either. They're praying for pain. Pain goes to church. Pain accepts Jesus Christ as his Savior. He fought it. He didn't want to change, but one day he bowed his knee to Jesus Christ, and his life changed. And over the next five to six years, everyone on the golf course noticed the difference in pain. He became one of the most beloved golfers in the PGA. The, the years following his conversion to Jesus Christ, about five years later, six years later, in 1999, he won his first big U.S. Open, beating Phil Mickelson in one final putt. I watched that game. I'll always remember it because Phil was about to have his first child. And Payne came up to him, and they're on the final green. He can beat him with one putt or tie him with two. He puts the ball in the hole. And when the ball goes in the hole, uh, Phil, who I love, they call him Lefty. Phil comes up to him, and Payne, because of the change that had happened in his heart, grabs Phil. You can see pictures of this. He grabs Phil by his face, and he says to Phil, forget the golf game. Forget what we've just done. He grabs his face, and the first thing he says to, to Phil is, he said, you're going to make a heck of a great dad. He gets off the golf course, and in his final interview, he says, I just want everyone to know it's Jesus. It's Jesus that changed my life. I want everyone to know it's Jesus. That final putt is actually celebrated by behind the hole at Pinehurst on the 18th green with this statue dedicated to Payne Stewart. 
Four months later, Payne was in a jet flying from Florida to South Dakota that lost cabin pressure, and everybody on the, ca- on the plane lost consciousness. It ran on auto- autopilot from Florida to South Dakota before it crashed into an empty field. Everyone on board perished, including Payne, who was 42 years old. At his funeral, Paul Azinger, another great golfer, eulogized his friend by saying, Payne's pride, cynicism, and sarcasm were replaced with God's grace when he accepted Jesus. He began to care as much about people as he did about winning. And he wrapped up this final statement at the eulogy. He said, several people did many things to help Payne Stewart's game, but only God had the power to change Payne Stewart's heart. At this man's funeral, Azinger also said, if you feel the tug of God's spirit on your heart, don't turn away. Jacob said similar words after he wrestled with an angel. Here's what Jacob said in verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means face of God, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and my life, say it with me, church, has been delivered. Think of this. Jacob was Jacob no more. Jacob was Jacob no more. He was Israel. Some commentators believe this is the point of Jacob's salvation. His name was attached to so many different negative things, but God gave him a new name. And I'm here to tell you, church, that if you've attached your, 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 your name to so many negative things, only God has the power to change your name. In fact, that's one of the best things he does for us when we give our lives to him is he gives us a new name. It's the greatest name of all. It's the name of Jesus Christ. And when God looks at you, he sees his son. He doesn't see you as a person you used to be. He sees you as a person he's making you into. Verse 31. The sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Isn't that great? For the rest of his life, he'll have this reminder. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the sinew of the thigh. For 5,000 years, the Jewish people would remember God is a God who changes names. God is a God who gives a new future. God is a God who does not hold the past against us. Ninety years, Jacob messed up his name, but God gave him a new name. God broke Jacob's body so Christ could be seen better in him and gave him a new name so Jacob could remember he never had to be enslaved to that person ever again. So this is where we begin. Have you ever had to grapple with God? This message is for the fighter. It's a challenge for those of us who need to be in control. (laughs) Listen, God's in control anyway, right? Why do we fight so much to be in control? He has everything planned out. You can grapple for a place of power. You can grapple for a place of preeminence. You can grapple for the future that you dream for yourself. But God has a future planned for you that is better than anything you could plan yourself. God is in control. We need to accept that. You can grapple for the driver's wheel or let him drive wherever he wants you to go because quite frankly, he's going to anyway. The best place to be is to just say, drive. Take me wherever you want me to go. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, let him, church, what does he say? Let him first what? Deny himself 
Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever shall save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you know what it means to deny yourself? It means surrender. It means surrender. We find victory when we surrender. We find a new name when we give in and give up. The definition of the believer and the unbeliever is this. The unbeliever is not happy with the fact that God is in control and grapples for every minute of their lives. The believer is not just happy that God is in control, but they enjoy giving God the control. But sometimes the journey gets hard. And sometimes we want to take the steering wheel back. That's when faith comes into play. And we have to admit that God's plan is the best. Number two, this lesson is not so much about who Jacob was, it's about who God is. God will fight for you no matter how much you fail. God will keep his promises to you no, no, matter, no matter what. That's why Jacob prayed the way that he did. He said, listen, I may not realize how bad I have made my life for the last 90 years. Everybody hates me. But, and he's got nowhere to go. So he prays to God and he says, God, you promised me that you'd do something with my life. Oh, that literally is the end of your rope. But it's a good place to start realizing how much God is in control. Listen, if God has called you to be his own, you have all the promises in Scripture. They are yours. But they are built not on your performance. They are built on the person of Jesus Christ. God is faithful to his promises, not because we deserve it or earn it, but because he makes those promises based on Jesus Christ. Listen to this verse. It's great. First, 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes or their completion in him. That's Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God. By the way, that's why I say in Jesus' name, amen. Nothing works unless it's in the name of Jesus Christ. It is for his glory. Back to scripture in verse 21. And it is God who establishes us. God does all the work. He establishes us with you in Christ. He anoints us and he puts a seal on us and gives us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What do you have to do to hang on to God's blessings? Nothing. Not a thing. But it's a lot easier if you let him drive. Number three. What does God want from us? Simple. You. <laughs> he wants you. He wants surrender. Some people think it's, this means that we have to be somebody different. I want to challenge you in that. This doesn't mean you have to be somebody different. God created you to be you. He put it, your DNA in you to be you. You don't have to change into Craig, for goodness sakes. That's a bad choice. Don't change into somebody around you. You be you, but surrender you to God. Because whoever God made you in, into is who he wants to use. Let him redeem the values that make you, you. This is a place of utter surrender and joy. You have a name, you have gifts, you have abilities, you have character traits. Those are a part of you. God doesn't want to change your DNA. He created you uniquely as you are. But he wanted, what he wants to do is use those things for his glory. I'm looking at you and a lot of you are different. You have different traits and different characteristics and different qualities. But that's what makes you, you. If you were to re let God redeem all of those traits and all of those character, characteristics, who could God make you into? Surrender those to God. 
He wants to use all of you for his glory. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to the end of this message and the climactic moment of Jacob wrestling with an angel, and he'll never be the same. He'll never be the same. Thank you, Father, that you give us a new name, a new hope, new vision, a new future. Thank you that we can be redeemed in the first place and surrender our lives to you so that you can use us. Thank you that you created us just the way that we are so that we can use those traits and characteristics and those little foibles that make us us. So you can make us into something that glorifies you. Thank you that we're not all the same, but we're uniquely different. And you need every one of us. You love us. You gave your son for us. And you offer redemption to all of us. Father, may this world surrender to you. May they bow their knee to you. May they recognize that is the only way life can make sense. In a world that messes up life so often, may you use this generation to redeem life. Help us understand what it means to be a generation that surrenders to your authority, to your guidance who wants to live and run, understands obedience to you is the best place we could be. And may you use all of us as redeeming agents in a world that gets really, really dark. Forgive us, Father, for yanking the wheel away from you. You know what you're doing. We pretty much don't. So help us to trust you more. I pray that this church would be used amazingly in the time that you give us to redeem Carol's stream, to help them to know that you love them, that you have a future for them, and that they can be used, they can use their lives in ways that go beyond just this life, but enter into eternity until one day we can stand before you and you can say to us one day, God, that you could say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. In this way, Lord, help us to be Israel and not Jacob's in our lives. Thank you for this promise that you make on the back of your broken son and not on our performance. It's in him that we claim all of this and it's in his name we live and pray all these things. Amen.